0: With Ken Kidney.
1: Good morning, good evening, good night, and welcome to another edition of the Weekend Show. My name is Ken Kidney, and I am joined by my wonderful co-host Garrett Segar. Tally ho, tally ho! Liking it. Coming up on the show this week, we bring you the Week in Words. As always, we give you. Our picks from around the web in NetPicks, and in our spotlight, we pay tribute to the life and times of the late president of Nintendo, Satoru Iwata, who died at the age of 55 following a long battle with cancer. But before we get to the week in words, how was your week, Er?
2: My week was small and ant-sized. Interesting. Tell God me more. I went to see Ant-Man.
1: Nice. I also saw Ant-Man, saw it yesterday. We
2: did not see it together, but we both did see it yesterday.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people I know went to see it yesterday. They actually, it was actually quite a strong turnout for like the opening day.
2: Yeah, it's one of those, because like, you know what you're going to get with Iron Man or Captain America or Hulk or all of those folks. It's kind of nice to get something that you don't really know what to expect when you go in to see it.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like Guardians of the Galaxy in the fact that the, the Marvel name carried it through and got people to give it a chance. But it stood on its own merit. Uh, let me let's see here. We I think it grows 6.4 million in its opening day. Which is pretty good. Alone. Well, like in its preview day. Because usually there's like the official release and then there's a the preview release. So 6.4 million. Although some people are saying it's going to fall short of its 60 million projection for its opening weekend. I don't think so, somehow.
2: This is a film that will probably make somewhere in the region of about half a billion dollars. Maybe a little more. And it'll probably be called like a box office failure. Because it didn't make 1.4 billion whatever the avengers made yeah or is it going to make somewhere in the line of what like the first thor movie made or the first captain america movie made which is what you'd expect from a new franchise not everything can be guardians of the galaxy and a super hit yeah
1: exactly and you have to look at the fact that like one of the pluses for marvel was it was made on a cheaper budget than some of some of its bigger properties like uh, the avengers was something in the region of 250 million this was made for 130 million so you know the the, the road to, to profit is is shorter um so t- tell me what you liked about it gar
2: it doesn't look like they cut any corners either because the special effects are fantastic
1: is that one of your favorite aspects
2: yeah they kind of realized the ant-man character quite well And like my my main impression coming out that is that life as an ant is terrifying yeah it's like everything is a threat Everything is ginormous And out to kill you
1: That's what we've learned from it I thought it was kind of fun Light hearted A bit A bit of a departure from their. The world is doomed We've had to fix it Kind of well, model they've,
2: they've always had Um, They've always been Borderline comedies I think this one More than most Is almost flat out a comedy
1: Yeah I think it does a good job uh, Poking fun At the absurdity Of the character Because it is an absurd Yeah he shrinks
2: to the size Of an ant And runs around Beating people up
1: With the help of ants Yeah. But it also didn't discredit it in its poking fun.
2: I thought it made it seem cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, whereas like
2: he's harnessing other ants to—it's it's essentially a heist movie. Yeah, and he's harnessing other ants to have him uh, commit his heist, and they're they're flying all over the place, and those they're building ant bridges to get him across gaps.
1: Yeah. It's like that's cool. All the ants have special abilities, like they can fly, or they're they're good at building things, so they're his allies. So like, like for a while, you're like ants really but like the way they did it just really made sense i think i think its strength was that it was that it actually tied it all to technology and they used technology to communicate with the ants rather than having some kind of innate ability or weird magic power where Mm, they're able to super ant command power exactly just because the ants do my bidding they i am the king of the ants
2: yeah he taps into a frequency they can hear and then essentially tells them what to do
1: Paul Rudd is charming as always. He's Garth.
2: super good. Like, uh, always likable. People kind of question him as a superhero, but he does, he fits right into that Marvel mold as kind of a jokester, kind of laughing his way through a, a, a film of kind of epic stakes. And he's like, oh, the world's ending. Could everything could be destroyed, but I'm going to crack jokes and have fun. Yeah, it's kind of like,
1: uh, kind of a good fit for him, a good character for him. Uh, maybe not the way it was written in the comic books, but they really did a good job of writing the character to fit him perfectly and to to play to his strengths but also make him believable as as a hero.
2: Yeah, Paul Rudd wouldn't work playing Thor. He works no. perfectly well playing Ant Man.
1: Yeah, but like people forget Ant Man in the comic books. Ant Man and Wasp are actually founding members of the Avengers. So yeah. they're actually very important characters. So for the Everyman, they seem insignificant.
2: And but they seem a harder sell as well, don't they? Yeah. Like, when you're establishing a universe, Thor and Captain America and Hulk and Iron Man are kind of easier to sell to people. Ant-Man is the one you bring along later when people have a bit of trust in you.
1: See, it's, it's kind of a balance because for the, the hardcore fans, you're going to have them who understand the characters and anticipate this movie. But you also have the casual viewers who aren't as into the comic books or the universe. Who you're gonna to have to sell it to them and they're the people obviously that where the money is, so you're gonna to have to tap into that.
2: And they, they acknowledge Ant Man's existence prior to this film. Like Ant Man has like they retroactively include Ant Man in kind of the Marvel Universe with Michael Douglas as Ant Man.
1: Yes. And you know, f- you know, handing over the mantle to Scott Pym. So he has been, to Scott Lang, excuse me, not Scott Pym. That's mixing yeah. up the
2: two names. He has been fluttering around the kind of the Marvel universe until now, but yeah. only now are we actually seeing him.
1: Although I totally missed the cameo from Howard Stark. I totally forgot that was him.
2: Yeah. That was the, the, the film the original Howard Stark from the Old Iron Mans though, isn't it? Yeah. Rather than the fellow who played him in the Captain America film. Yeah, but that's and a, plays him in aging character.
1: That's a younger version though. Yeah. Whereas, Whereas
2: Hayley Atwell still plays um uh, peggy carter no matter what she's in yeah she just kind of they kind of aged her up with some makeup they either have her playing in her 30s aged her to her 90s she's probably around six, 50 60 ish in this one she's still there A- another strong element was that the actor they got to play scott lang's
1: daughter uh abby Ryder Fortson, is hilarious also adorable adorbs she's like, but she's not annoying she's not an annoying tr- yeah. she's like, she's precocious but she's she's not like jarring and you know
2: and she's not in it too much yeah she's in it just the amount of time that you're like yeah you're cute and adorable and kid-like rather if she was like the crux of the whole film you'd be like why is she still here
1: i'm gonna just talk to you some of the cons they did have an extremely one-dimensional villain
2: yeah cory stroll of house of cards fame played him he essentially wanted to weaponize and the ant-man suit and the ant-man powers to turn it into a
1: and he's driven a bit mad by the fact that he was jilted by Hank Pym, who kept the technology from him. Yeah. So he was striving to to outdo him and create it. And then they made some kind of brief allusion to the fact that uh, his using of the, the particle or the the serum that makes it work drove him a bit insane, nuts. Yeah. But you didn't see him use the suit at all up to then. So that was kind of
2: a... They never really kind of established that, did they?
1: Yeah a little uneven uneven in in terms of the writing at times but that's possibly perhaps to the fact that there was two different teams working on it because edgar wright was originally hired to direct it and he left the project Mm. so you can see different styles of writing throughout it and the story is is pretty standard really there's nothing
2: threat superhero adopt superhero powers mixed
1: mixed with a heist movie but overall i i would definitely give it a thumbs up I, i um i always kind of judge these films on whether i'd want to watch it again and it's definitely a, a rewatch movie what do you think
2: gary what i liked about it uh, especially at the end the big climactic final battle with the villain in most of these ones they're destroying cities and the, the, the fate of a world is at stake or is this one it's very very small you know uh, yeah. i won't spoil it on people but the scale of the final battle with uh between paul rod and cory stoll's characters are are ex- it's extremely small in scale which i think is, is a stark departure from a lot of superhero films and really refreshing
1: and it was it was funny without lowering the stakes yep so i won't say too much more we don't want to spoil much more i also said saw ted 2 this week
2: um i have an objection to film comedy sequels so garrett won't be saying it. i won't I, I refuse to go see film comedy sequels
1: there uh, i'll keep it brief but there is quite a lot of laughs in there i said in our summer previews that it has a lot more meat to it in terms of a story, and that's actually true. You know, it feels like there's more at stake, and like it, but like they don't use that to full advantage. They don't use it to drive the story. They just it kind of plods along at times. But there is a lot of laughs in there. Kind of if you're into that kind of gross-out uh, juvenile humor, which they do very well. You know, that's that's one the of, Family Guy brand of humor, and it's one of Mark Wahlberg's actual strengths. So I definitely recommend that as well if you're kind of looking for something that's not too challenging and good for a chuckle. You can check out Ant-Man and Ted 2 in theaters now. Next up is the phenomenon that is The Week in Words. Stick around. We've got some pop culture gems for you coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Weekend Show Podcast
0: with Ken
3: Kidney. Police in Colorado Springs say a stuffed toy minion helped save a five-year-old girl's life when she accidentally fell backward out of her bedroom window and dropped three stories to the ground.
1: Minion saves girl's life in three-story fall. Police said the young girl was playing when she fell backwards out of her bedroom window, holding the cuddly replica.
2: Minions are good for people now, Ken.
1: They're always good for people. Well, some people hate them, but they saved a young girl's life. I don't. I don't know
2: why people hate minions. They're they're fine.
1: So the girl escaped with only a broken arm, which is quite remarkable. So it must have been one of those really big plushies. Interestingly enough, girl. She's from. Colorado Springs you know someone else from Colorado Springs Bobby Lashley Bobby Lashley of TNA wrestling fame so maybe he knows the young girl
2: but that's besides the point or maybe he knows the minion which minion do you think it was Bob I think Dave is more of a life-saving minion Dave is more of a hero he's he's kind of the the responsible I'm gonna break your fall when you're falling out a window kind of minion it's like it's just like typical like that could be actually be a plot in the next minions movie yeah or and minions are immortal so Dave will be fine
1: Dave like just like got up and went banana. <laughs> so like, and he won't want a re- a reward either. He just want a banana.
2: Yeah, and but, then he probably kill the girl because she's not evil enough. Yeah,
1: she or she's like maybe she is evil.
2: Maybe and then he's gonna kill him anyway if the Minions film is is to be believed.
1: Maybe she maybe she's
2: like like the the their boss or oh
1: she's one of the children from Despicable Me. <gasps> Despicable Me is a true life story, Ken. A quote from one of the police officers says that fortunately, when the child fell out of the window, she continued holding on to a stuffed Minion teddy bear that is believed to have cushioned her fall. She was treated in the hospital and released, and authorities have ruled the incident to be an accident. The Minion didn't push her out the window? No. Are
2: we sure?
1: What, do you think there's some kind of struggle where they, like, <laughs> they're like <laughs> fighting?
2: Flipping in the air, hoping the minion was actually trying to use the girl as a break fall.
1: <laughs> the minion was trying to use the girl as a question, so they they, they struggle and then like in the, in their in their kerfuffle
2: yeah. or fight, they they fell over the balcony. Minion clearly lost. lost so if I, I retract my statement, Ken, minions are still terrible for people. So they're still evil, Gar trying to kill little girls and, and then, then getting claim claiming all the glory afterwards. The ultimate despicable act.
1: And then pretending to be a teddy bear, but it's
2: actually a real minion. This is, this is the biggest conspiracy in the history of man.
1: We're going to follow this story in the coming weeks to see if there's any developments.
2: We'll try and interview the minion.
1: He won't have much to say,
2: though. Perhaps <laughs> yeah. banana. Some unintelligible you know, nonsense. Kumbaya. And then he'll heave.
1: Yeah. And or else he won't say anything because he's a stuffed animal. He's not an animal, though. He's a stuffed... He's a stuffed thing? Fi- replica? Figure?
2: Thing? He's like Gonzo, it's just an it.
1: He's a thing. A fire hydrant, we I don't people
2: re- describe him as. Yeah.
1: Let's move on. They say that there are no original ideas in Hollywood anymore. This next story shows that this may be true. Get ready to have your childhood ruined.
2: With live-action versions of The Jungle Book and Beauty and the Beast set to arrive in theaters in the coming years, and several more in development, The Hollywood Reporter reports that Disney is now planning to make a live-action version of their hit 1992 classic, Aladdin. The plan is to first release a prequel that, instead of focusing on the title character, will delve into the world of genies and reveal how Aladdin's genie ended up enslaved in the lamp. It's a whole new world, Ken, as Disney announced this week that they were making a live-action Aladdin prequel titled Genies. Disney will continue the recent trend of reinterpreting their classic animated films in live-action as they will make Genies, a sequel centered around surprise, surprise, the Genie. Kind of sad that they're making this after the death of Robin Williams, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it seems a little bit cheap. And like there is a, a uh, an allusion, uh, allusion to the fact that it might actually not be the, the Genie genie from aladdin oh, it'll but be different genies genies or like a genie's universe or something like that but like it just proves that like we kind of spoke about this on the podcast before i think that disney have a tough time like battling on both fronts like if they have a, a very successful period of animation like they're having now they're actually bereft of ideas on the live action front And but then kind of in the late 80s when they were focusing on live action they were having successful live action they were actually having a poor time animation wise so But now they're actually just They're stealing They're they're clever Because you're just going to steal Their their classics And people will pay for it
2: Yeah you can't rub yourself off I mean I think
1: they've they, They've got some good I mean uh, John Carter Is terrible
2: I mean I've never seen it I've only seen Very small bits of it That looked like Utterly awful
1: And it's just one of those films Where I actually turned it off And I, mm. I'm a person That will watch a film I won't turn yeah. it off I just turned it off Lone Ranger We were to see
2: that And oh. we really liked it <laughs>
1: I really liked it. I thought there was room for a franchise and it's just, just it's whimsical. It's fun,
2: It's lighthearted, tons of adventure.
1: Yeah. It was one of those films that the critics killed it. They yeah. panned it before it came out. And that's kind of unfair. I think it's just like, but like, I think people are stupid if they kind of read about a film and go, I don't want to see that. This guy thinks it's terrible. It's like films are such an objective thing that you're, you're going to like, you're going to like something that somebody else, someone else isn't going to like. Um, I think they've been a bit hit and miss with their adaptations Alice in Wonderland is okay. It's very Burtony. I don't see why it made a billion dollars. Burtony. Uh, I avoided Cinderella because I just thought that was a blatant cash in. Yeah. The only one I actually liked was Maleficent, but but only because it was a a different take on the story, focusing on a different character, and uh, Angelina Angelina Jolie did a very good job of playing Maleficent. So it wasn't uh, a Sleeping Beauty remake. It was kind of a. a a a different take on the, on the on the on the story and the universe so that's probably why it was the most successful uh maybe that's why they're going this way with genies it's going to be kind of a,
2: a spin-off rather than a kind of direct prequel yes i would have thought a, a prequel along lines of running through aladdin's childhood might have been an interesting idea
1: yeah about his background why he's poor why he has no parents yeah um maybe you could do something like in conjunction with the genies background like they don't inter like right come up to the right the point right before they act, their lives actually intersect possibly although at that point he's been in a a lamp for like a thousand years so i can't think how
2: a thousand years of a a film will track a thousand years and then about 15 of aladdin or however old aladdin is
1: yeah well it it doesn't really says how old he is but a lot of people are touting james eagleheart who played the genie in the broadway adaptation he won a tony award for it this year Mm. so some people think he'd be the right the, the the obvious choice to play the genie if it is the the genie from Aladdin,
2: you'll only draw comparisons to Robin Williams, though, won't he?
1: Yeah, that's the tricky part because you wanna you want to create something new, but like at the same time you want to go with what people know and you want to be familiar. But if he tries to copy Robin Williams, people are gonna it's gonna yeah blow up in his face. It's gonna be a backlash.
2: It's being written by the same people who wrote Freddy vs Jason and the Friday the Thirteenth remake. So, um,
1: Which is appropriate because it's likely to be a horror.
2: Hi-oh. Hi-oh. But it's not exactly a huge writing pedigree. No. Those aren't very good films.
1: They're moderately successful in their genre. Yeah. Uh, Literally, all their classic tales are now being considered for live-action retellings. Even ones that you wouldn't even think would be appropriate. One of them, Pinocchio, makes a bit of sense. Although there's been a, quite a few attempts to make a Pinocchio live-action film, all of them have... Blocked. Yeah. It just doesn't work for some reason Peter Hedges from About a Boy Which I really like as a film Is is touted to write that one yeah. Disney is also supposed to be developing ideas As I said on stuff that you mightn't think That could be a uh, live action film uh, Winnie the Pooh That would be super weird It would be super weird and I could see where they're going to go with it Like you know uh, kind of a computer-generated Winnie, and then uh, yeah, because
2: th- there was Paddington, and Paddington was delightful. Yeah, but Pooh in real life would just seem weird.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I can't see myself liking that. Dumbo depends how they approach it. I think if they use real elephants, maybe I might be no talking elephants. Yeah.
2: As in Dumbo, they adapted as Dumbo was an elephant who doesn't talk but has some kind of role, and people are protecting him for some reason, something like that.
1: Yeah, uh, and like I wouldn't even mind if they cut out the flying element.
2: Yeah, and also Mulan. Yeah,
1: which again, yeah. there is there's actually a a Mulan a Mulan action film made in uh, made in Asia. I like, you can actually find it on Netflix if you look for it in the in the Asian section. There's actually an Asian section on Netflix. I recommend
2: it. But Without the music, Mulan would be relatively worthless.
1: Yeah. Let's get down to business. To defeat the Huns. Na-na-na-na-na. Hopefully they do that. But anyway, they probably won't. <laughs> yeah, get Donny But like, that Osmond would be a good act. idea, I think. Just remake them as musicals. It was Donnie Osmond, wasn't it? Yes, it was Donnie Osmond, who's not Asian. He's not. Disney's more immediate live action reimaginings include The Jungle Book for 2016, which will be a mix of live action and animation, Directed by John Favreau, who starred and directed in the Iron Man films and the upcoming—it's um, not Tomorrowland; it's the other one. It's the thing like where all, like Disneyland comes to life. Space Mountain? No. Oh God, it's skipping my mind. Out. Uh, the Magical Kingdom. Yeah, ah, that's it. Right. Yeah, he's he, he's touted for that. He actually skipped Iron Man three for that. It has the voices of Scarlett Johansson, Idris Elba, Bill Murray,
2: Lupita Nyong'o. I, cor- I correctly pronounced a, f- a name that's unfamiliar to you. Yes. If she didn't win any Oscars, you'd never know how to pronounce that also, name. Also, like there's a, a
1: funny blooper reel of Americans trying to pronounce her name the night after she won the Oscars, so I made a point of correctly pronouncing that name. Christopher Walken is also in it. Terrifying. Imagine Christopher Walken doing, like, she or Khan, Mowgli, I'm going
2: to eat you. I hope he plays Mowgli. Because that would be terrifying and amazing.
1: Imagine Christopher Walken sing, singing the song, for, uh, singing bare necessities. Look for the bare necessities. Let me let me try my terrible Christopher Walken. Look for the bare necessities. <laughs> no, I can't do it. Uh, a new take on Beauty and the Beast with Emma Watson is also slated for two thousand and seventeen. So this isn't going away.
2: Yeah, and Disney can't really fail here. They they'll have the Pixar films, the animated films, the Star Wars films, and the Disney or the the Marvel films to fall back on. Exactly. So even if all of these are flops, Disney are going to be rolling in money.
1: They won't flop though because I think nostalgia. We all say that is big business. That's one of our favorite sayings on the podcast. Mm-hmm. People will like people will go see it just because they love the animated films. It might not necessarily work, but they'll get the money. It might not be critically acclaimed, but
2: it, it will it will be
1: successful financially.
2: Disney will remake your childhood, whether you like it or not.
1: <laughs> Love us. If you're only just managing to wean yourself off the serious addiction that is Angry Birds, you may not want to listen to this next story. <laughs> Finnish games developer Rovio is due to launch a sequel to Angry Birds later this month. Since its initial launch on the iOS App Store back in 2009, the game has become the highest downloaded freemium gaming franchise of all time, with over 3 billion downloads across all platforms.
2: You know what I never understood? Go ahead. You can buy Angry Birds on the iTunes store for 99 cent. Yeah. And then there's like three versions because they have Star Wars, they have Seasons, they have, what else do they have? Rio, they had Angry Birds Rio. Ten
1: spin-offs over or over the last six years.
2: Yeah, so they packaged a bunch of those together to sell on consoles yeah. for 30 Euro. 30 Euro. Yeah. The, the 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 total value of it on mobile is only about three euro. But they want you to pay 30 euro for it on consoles. So they've had like
1: ten they've had ten spin-offs and iterations, including Angry Bird Friends, which people actually liked apparently. I never heard of that. Angry Birds Seasons Those those were the two Most successful ones I played a
2: lot of seasons And I played a lot of the original I didn't play any of the other ones
1: But they're saying Like the kicker for this one is It's the first True sequel To Angry Birds Sure So it's going back to basics And going back to what The original game was About more
2: So it's like the Kingdom Hearts series But there's Kingdom Hearts 1 2 And then like 15 Different spin-offs And now there's going to be Kingdom Hearts 3
1: And we're going back to the What you liked about it In the first place It's It's due to be released On July 30th I've
2: heard very little about it
1: Very little is known about it, Gar. to be honest, but Rovio said it was, I have called it the mother of all sequels, which is a very, very thin marketing ploy. It's like, buy it and find out.
2: Desperate. Because Rovio aren't doing so well, are they?
1: No. So, but they said that the formula of the game will most likely remain unchanged. So they're kind of giving their hand away there. It's like, we're just kind of trying to trick you into buying this because apparently they've lost up to 50% of their dominance in the market
2: to games like candy crush clash of Can- clans yeah that's the thing about mobile games they're generally kind of very flimsy in premise yeah so it's they're the kind of things you play obsessively for a week and then forget about entirely
1: exactly they hit their peak of downloading and popularity and then they just kind of they're like there's
2: no way to stop it i don't think there's actually any way to stop it no it's just... i think it's it's a kind of a brain chemistry thing it's just like "Ooh, this and they designed them to be that way so it's really their own fault they designed them to be kind of In substantial substantial experiences that you can kind of uh, engage with for a minute or two at a time and then throw aside. So either this will be like their saving grace or... Their last hurrah. Their last hurrah. Well, they're making an animated film as well. There
1: is a film that's been touted. So either that could kind of boost them as well and renew interest in the franchise, or it could also be the nail in their coffin. And a total disaster. So it will be available on all platforms, as you said, Adobe Flash Player, Xbox One, Android, iOS uh did, do do xbox have exclusive rights to it? it It doesn't go on playstation or anything like that
2: i'd imagine if they did it's only a timed exclusive or it's available exclusively on xbox for a certain period and then not in playstation or and then eventually on playstation but uh, I, like that's that's the problem with mobile games there's no sustainability there is there
1: i mean there was a time where you where you literally could not go anywhere without hearing but now like i think it's just around course you heard like Literally, like, it comes in fads. Candy Crush, all all those gem games, Farmville. You don't hear anything
2: about those anymore. They still make money to an extent, but... But the folks that make Farmville are also struggling. They run their course. There's just no, like, as I said, there's no sustainability. There's this fad, you make a bunch of money, and then you don't make any more people You get in, you get out. They're like That's the reason I think mobile gaming is a bit of a fad it's a bit of a bubble
1: yeah it's not a it's not a sustainable business to flog the same horse but like you'd have to innovate i think to yeah. to stay in a company in mobile gaming
2: and uh, i think that the formula for success on mobile is very random yeah it's just whatever people happen to pick up and gains a bit of social traction yeah that it'll take off for a month or two and disappear
1: and share with their friends like that other game that guy made but
2: then he then he Flappy Bird.
1: Flappy Bird. And then he, he got rid of it due to all the pressure.
2: And now it's back and no one cares. Exactly.
1: Nobody talks about it anymore because it was a it's, flavor of the yeah, month.
2: It's, it's, the, it's something for the news cycle to report on and then forget about.
1: Moving on.
0: I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nineteen rows will I have there a hive for the honey bee, and live alone in the bee-loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the vales of the morning to where the cricket sings. There midnight's all a glimmer, and noon a purple glow. On evening full of rain swings. I will arise and go now, for always night and day, I hear lake water lapping with low sounds of the shore. While I scan the roadway, or on the pavement's gray, I hear it in the deep heart's core.
2: French records suggest wb coffin sent to Ireland after Poet's death held others' bones. The bones in the coffin, Ken, weren't his, apparently. The recently discovered French documents suggest that WB8 may not be resting under Ben Baldwin after all.
1: I was thinking to myself when I first read the headlines, like, how could this actually happen, that the, the wrong remains would come back? But it, it is documented that his remains only came back in 1939, which was 10 years after he died.
2: So that's possibly where the... We were probably just badgering the French. It's like, France, he's kind of our famous poet. Can you send their bones back? And they're like, oh, God, we don't have them. Oh, God. Just shove
1: anything in a box. Go to the morgue. Just get whatever you got. Uh, The Irish Times has reported on Saturday that the man responsible for locating Yates' remains uh, believed that the job was impossible as not knowing what was sent home in his place.
2: I like the way people have been worshipping the grave of a randomer for years. And some random French fella shoved in a box and sent to us as WV-8s. And people have been visiting his grave for years. And, and, and it's literally just nobody.
1: Yeah. Strangely enough, they were flown here in 1939. I didn't think we had that kind of thing.
2: We wouldn't have had planes in 1939,
1: Ken. Well, yeah. Well, I think, well, I, I picture back then Ireland
2: literally being fields. and F- Fields, no and electricity huts. or any of that kind of stuff. We didn't have radio. And houses made out of mud. Yeah. And we only ate potatoes. Yeah.
1: That's what the, the that's what the Americans think we are now. It,
2: it is. They come here and they see like lampposts and are like, "Whoa."
1: The coffin was inspected when it arrived in Sligo, and they were like, "Yeah, those look like him, all right." Even though it's just a skeleton. Yep. Uh, Yates' granddaughter declined to comment on the reports, uh, but a statement uh, from his children in 1988 expressed confidence in the French official who had witnessed the removal of the bones.
2: The fact that they had to say that in 1988 seems like this was a problem for a while now.
1: Yeah. It's just like,
2: how are you supposed to know whose bones are whose? And realistically, he's long gone. So, does it really matter that he's not there?
1: Well, like, it's one of those things that the media felt the need to report on because obviously, it's going to get clicks. It's going to sell papers. But like, has it done anything for the cultural psyche of the people? Like, is it is kind of important for, to people that he that people thought he
2: was him laying there? And even if it's not, that's still a monument in his death. So, yeah.
1: so have they harmed? harmed uh, well the th-
2: fact that we now might not know where he really is has kind of ruined it yeah better to not know than know in this case isn't it
1: because they'll never find him so like and it is a great spot for people like like all over the world he's known as one of the greatest poets that ever lived and and for tourism alone i think that could like be a, a harmful story like I, I think that's one that was better left on the shelf
2: for me anyway we to study for the leaving third i do did AIDS? not I didn't do Yeats. No. I don't remember much about Yeats.
1: Yeah. He looks like a bit of a, a tortured individual. I've seen All pictures of him. poets are
2: tortured individuals. It's like, like, oh, woe is the world. Everything is terrible. I wish things were like something they were in the past. Like, no, things are fine. Stop being moany poets.
1: A lot of the Irish kind of literary greats tend to live, tended to live and die in, in France, didn't they? Yeah. Maybe it's the That's word. That's
2: clearly how, how highly I think of poetry there, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like moaning. Lyrical moaniness, Ken. That's what most of poetry is.
1: I think, uh, before we get worked up, we'll move on to the next story. I <laughs> think angry poetry. The long-awaited sequel for To Kill a Mockingbird hit shelves this week, but for some reason, the phrase, be careful what you wish for, comes to mind.
0: Harper Lee's new novel, set in the same town with the same characters, was actually written three years before To Kill a Mockingbird. And in the new book, Atticus Finch, the courageous defender of equality, is portrayed as a bigot.
1: Go set a watchman release causes distress for Atticus Finch fans around the globe. A glimpse of the character's darker side spurs backlash to Harper and Lee's new novel.
2: Spoilers. I'll leave a pause just in case you actually care about spoilers. He's a horrible racist now.
1: Apparently so.
2: Like he was a bastion of of, of tolerance and civil respect. rights and model father, and now he's a horrible racist old man.
1: The book is sent 20 years after the original and apparently an old and bitter Atticus Finch has apparent views on race and segregation, according to a review published in the New York Times, which isn't as reputable as it has been in recent times, but we'll take their word for it. Uh, And it just tells the story of a grown up uh, scout who was his daughter and the main character uh, as she goes about her business. I I haven't read too much about it because... I haven't read the original book, so. But apparently, it means a lot. This book means a lot to people. It
2: does. It's considered a classic. I have read it.
1: In the last ten years, eight hundred and forty-six out of every one million kids in America is named Atticus. Not
2: anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just only the racists are gonna call their kids Atticus now. Yeah. So what did they expect, though? This this was the first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. She wrote this book first. Yeah. They took this book said these flashback scenes are really good, the rest of it not so much, and then she wrote a book around the flashback scenes that people loved.
1: Yeah, her editor says, we really want you to focus on the childhood flashbooks of... Uh, flashbooks. Flashbooks. That's the new Facebook. Or it,
2: it's a new, like, two-page book. Flashbook.
1: So it's it's basically, we like the flashbacks of Scout and her childhood. Those have promised. Write that. And then the the manuscript for to set a Watchman was locked away mm-hmm. with the original manuscript for To Kill a Walking Bird. Never to be seen again, and now it's released and published. Some people are making accusations uh, that Harper Harper Lee, who's eighty nine, eighty nine years old now, and she lives in assisted assisted caring facility. She's not very good, at, and she never ever wrote another book. Yeah, she's kind of hard of hearing. She's kind of, uh, you know, she's old. Like, and and yeah. people are are saying that like maybe they exploited her and that like her her full permission and knowledge wasn't given
2: you'd have to think she actively chose not to publish this book in the last 50 years for a reason.
1: So they kind of waited to prey on her when she didn't know any about her to kind of just get her to sign some kind of document to, to release it.
2: Like what can people expect out of this book? This is the bad book she wrote before she wrote the good book. And now it's being released and people are like, well, it wasn't very good. This was a draft. They've released a draft that, that the publishers at the time thought wasn't worthy of releasing. And they're like, ah, cash cow
1: harper collins that's kind of interesting she's her name is harper and harper collins is her publisher insisted that she's delighted that the new book is coming out
2: well you could like she is 89 she is not long for this world at at that age you might think that she wanted to release it on her own terms
1: possibly maybe she just wanted to to have some kind of resolution before she passed on
2: some kind of control over what would have inevitably been published after her death yeah it would have been found in her office or wherever she kept it and uh, people who had the rights to it would have said, yep, money.
1: Like, maybe this is the book she always wanted to write. And maybe she is. just wasn't allowed to. And, like, some people are saying she wrote the great American novel and they're accusing of elder abuse. Her it might agent. be a little
2: condescending just to say, oh, because she was old. She she wasn't capable of making that decision.
1: Her her, her lawyer, Tanya Carter, is a, is adamant that she was the one that made the decision. But Tonya Carter was also the one that found the book.
2: And so this book has made a lot of money. I so can't far.
1: not think that she hasn't got any vested interest there either. Yeah, but uh, and HarperCollins have have been adamant that it hasn't gone through any revisions either. Gary, you were skeptical about that? No,
2: I think I think uh, what I was saying is like the this was the bad book. Yeah. Like this is this is the book that they didn't want at the time, and she fixed it and wrote a great book, and this a was shoved to the book. side. Yeah. This is this is the book she didn't want to release, really, or maybe she did. I don't know. But it's not the one she released. It's not the one any th- anyone thought was any good. And then they fixed it and released the good one. And now we're getting the bad one years later because they know it will sell.
1: It's kind of an interesting thing to happen, though, because she never wrote anything else. So it's one of the most anticipated uh, book sequels possibly ever. Like, because yeah. nobody expected this to happen because she never wrote
2: anything. It's not like, oh, she never returned to this story or she never returned to the same themes. Yeah. She never wrote anything.
1: Would it be the same book if she had written it in the proper order, though?
2: As in wrote this first and then released To the Kill a Mockingbird as kind of an expanded prequel?
1: No, say, for example, she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird and then she wrote this. Would Atticus Finch's character development still be the same?
2: I doubt it because I think that's the very one of the main things they probably fixed about the first one to make Atticus a more likable character
1: yeah so like you you think that maybe in the original book that he was defending a black person but he doesn't necessarily agree with it but he does it because it's his job and then but like how does he get from a to b then i wonder that's a kind of the most interesting part about it for me
2: well apparently her own father uh became a little more liberal as he got older so maybe it's a reflection of her own relationship with her father yeah or at the stage where she wrote um uh, Ghost at a Watchman. Yeah. At the stage where she wrote Ghost at a Watchman, her father might have uh, held kind of more extreme views. But then, by the time she got to write writing To Kill a Mockingbird, her father might have become a little more liberal in
1: his own age. But This is on the flip side because because it's out of order, isn't it? Yeah. But I might read both books and then we can get maybe talk about it I read To in Kill a Mockingbird. It yeah. also became a hit film as well. Like it's like Gregory Peck's most famous role. He won an Oscar for it. Uh, it's like a classic film, a classic book. So some people are right disappointed that it went this way. It kind of tarnishes their view of what they view, uh, their view of what they view of as like a classic story that like almost kind of untouchable to some people. Like it shouldn't have been.
2: Yeah, you can just do what I do with all like parts of films or book uh franchises that I don't like.
1: Just pretend they don't exist. That's what you do, poor poor fans of Atticus Finch. Just pretend. To set a watchman was, or to, to get a watchman? Go set a watchman. Go set a watchman. Strange, See?
2: strange title. I think it's a biblical quote of some sort. Yeah, it? It's,
1: it's, it doesn't roll off the tongue, but uh, if you're not liking it, just go ahead and just erase it from your brain. It's the best thing you can do. That interesting tale wraps up the week in words. More intriguing stories next week. We will be right back in your eardrums after a quick break to bring you some cool stuff from around the web in Netflix.
0: You're listening to The Weekend Show podcast with Ken Kidney. Download every Sunday at soundcloud.com slash Show.
2: Welcome back to The Weekend Show. It's time for our weekly roundup of the best of the web in the very cleverly titled Netflix. If you don't know how the story goes by now, we'll give you some choice selections available to access or purchase on the World Wide Web. Also, if they don't know how it goes by now, they probably don't because we change it every week. And they don't <laughs> listen to the podcast. Yeah, we, we've adapted the format slightly. We're just going to recommend you things that we'd like on the internet.
1: We, we're trying to improve for you, our listeners. We want to give you the best product that we can. So, Garrett, to kick things off, all the hullabaloo has been about the new trailer for
2: Batman versus Superman this week. But I understand you have something even better for our listeners. Who needs Batman and Superman, Ken, when you have The Adventures of Super Pup? Is that what it sounds like, Gareth? Oh, it's exactly what it sounds like, Ken. It's The Fabulous Adventures of Bark Bent. You didn't hear me wrong. Not Clark Kent. Bark Bent. Because he's a dog.
1: He's a dog. I'm afraid you're going to have to explain this more,
2: It was produced as a pilot in 1958, right after the the, the hugely successful Adventures of Superman series, which was on TV. It was a radio series before that. And they're like, well, this is over. How do we kind of capitalize and and re-spark the fire? So they made a pilot... Based on the fact that Superman is now a dog So that's the only change they've made Superman is now a dog Yep, it's Superman, but he's a dog okay. With a bunch of dog puns Because he's bark bent And Perry White is now Terry Bite <laughs> and the, 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 <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry, I'm professional <laughs> The last name of the villains is like Beagle <laughs> There's just a load <laughs> of dog puns thrown all over the place
1: Now, I didn't watch this in full, Gar, But you did send it to me on Twitter Yep TWSKK on Twitter In case you want to follow us We'll tweet out a link We'll tweet out a link So if you want to listen to us You have to follow us on Twitter
2: Yep Go out no. Go to Shaker, Twitter At TWSKK We'll probably Facebook a link too You can watch it there It's amazing
1: But basically It's a bunch of midgets With terrifying looking dog heads on. Yeah They're um,
2: like Alright so We're going to do a new adventure as a super puff. How do we create Dog like things Because we could get Real dogs to do it But that would be Very temperamental so we had a bunch of little people and put terrifying dog masks on them. That would not fly in Hollywood of today. It wouldn't. It's it's really surreal. And there's, for some reason, Superman has a rat sidekick who's kind of like the narrator of the show. When uh, He lives in a desk. Yeah. When Bark Bench transforms into Superman, he's like, yeah, you go, Superman. Go get him and save the day.
1: I really thought it was one of those things where like they made it in the modern day, but then they, like, they made it look old. But I, I was like, this can't possibly be real. But we assure you This is a real pilot
2: This is a real thing That was made with money People put resources Into this and thought This is gonna catch on It was only ever made As a pilot obviously It was never picked up Uh, It's very surreal though Because it's just like Dogs driving cars It's a dog world For some reason Where everyone is is The the body of a small man And the head of a dog Do they walk humans? They do What?
1: No they don't (laughs) (laughs) They really should though Like walk humans On leashes Because they're the dogs now
2: and there's a lot of maniacal laughing. I'm not sure, is it a comedy? I'm not sure, is it it, it thrown for laughs? It it kind of goes for comedy every so often. It has to be. Made. Surely it's made for children. Where, where Terry Byte... <laughs> <laughs> Terry Byte. Has, has a bomb in his office in a, a, a grandfather <laughs> clock. And he's like, Superman, get rid of the bomb. And he just starts throwing things from Terry, uh, Terry Byte's office out the window. And it's like, no, Superman, the bomb's in the clock. And he's like, oh... But it's it's surreal and really weird. So where can people find it, Gar? It's on YouTube. Just uh, type the Adventures of Superpup into YouTube. It's twenty minutes long, so that's a nice laugh—laughing at something really weird on the internet. And you'll you'll spend you'll spend the first few minutes going what? Just kind of staring at it
1: weirdly, but you just can't look away. So that's the Adventures of Super on YouTube. S U P E R P U P, exactly as it sounds. Super Something that I've come across recently, Garrett, is an app called Fuse. It's F-Y-U-S-E. I was going to say Z, but it's like it's not quite that cool. Yeah, it's not quite,
2: that's typical, like, modern social media thing. It's like, oh, we have to spell it weirdly. We can't just spell it F-U-S-E. That would be just too weird.
1: It's F-Y-U-S-E, uh, like Fuse. <laughs> Their website is f f y u dot e because I think it's a Swedish ah. company. But basically it's an interactive panorama making app, so what you, what it does is you take video in the for, uh, same form that you might take a panorama showing the range of movement that you want to show and then it stitches it all together using a, a kind of a, an algorithm or a technology to make an interactive panorama so for example, if you wanted to show like a concert and you want to show the whole crowd you go you make your video like and stay as steady as you can from left to right and then it would save that as a, an image, so it's a series of images stitched together. So you can actually, if you move your phone from left to right, it will pan across the crowd as if it's uh, as if it's kind of a slow motion video, as such.
2: Because iOS, they do have a panorama tool. Apple do. Yeah. It's very finicky though, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it works pretty well, better than you'd think for a phone. But like this. And like I actually tweeted them saying, "This is one of the coolest but yet useless things I've ever found (laughs) on the internet." Like it's like a a pointless diversion, but it's like one of the coolest pointless diversions I've ever found. Kind of technology behind it is kind of neat. It's not going to change the world. I think with the right backing, it could actually become the next big social media platform, kind of like Instagram. Or, or snapchat the random
2: success of these random apps
1: it's kind of a a, a, a little a, a little known secret at the moment not many people know about it I heard from about it from a friend so they're not quite at the level of of, of user saturation yet but it's just a cool little thing uh, you'll find on the app store or the iOS store FYU. S E spell it that way because otherwise you won't find it. I you won't eight, find it. Yeah, someone told me download Fuse, and I was like, I was looking for Fuse, <laughs> and I couldn't find Fuse. But it's a cool little thing. It'll, it's it's a nice way to spend a few minutes. I've done a few like a few panoramas with it, and you don't have to do just left to right. You can go up and down. Um, you can like, uh, you can like change just you, you can show different. You don't have to just show like a view. You could like show a range of movement, a range of gestures. So it's like one of those things. Like the tool is. Is, is what it is and it's intended for one purpose but a lot of people are adopting it and using it in different ways and that's the interesting thing about it it's like a piece so like you can actually create really creative and interesting pieces with it because it, it has like very few limitations in terms of what you can only your you can imagine so I recommend it, download it and spend about half an hour with it and then put it down and then come back to it in another
2: week or so. And then, yeah, and then when you're on the top of the cliffs of Moher or something, it's like, oh, this would be cool with panorama. It's like, oh, look, I have an app for that. Plus, guys,
1: you can be one of the first people to use it. And then when everybody has it, you're like, I knew about that before everyone knew about it. You can it. be
2: super hipster about it.
1: I was fusing before anyone else was. <laughs> That's,
2: it's going to become a verb.
1: Have you got something else for our listeners, Gar?
2: Uh, I have something to recommend to read, because we've we've established on this podcast we're wrestling fans. Yes. And the market leader in pro wrestling is WWE.
1: World Wrestling Entertainment.
2: Though they got rid of that. It's now only WWE, which kind of relates directly to what we're talking about today, uh, which is the idea of the language they use. They kind of have their own weird particular language. That There's words that you can and can't use. So I'm going to recommend something to read this week. It's The Language of WWE by Brandon Howard at VoicesOfWrestling.com. Uh, It was a really interesting look because this week, uh, the WWE notes for announcer's notes leaked. Yeah, I I actually read that list. It's ridiculous. Yeah, the things that you can and can't say. One of my favorite parts was don't use dates. Nobody understands dates. That's that's just nobody understands calendars, which is I've been going for thousands of years. And there's a bunch of banned words. They don't want you to call Wrestle- Wrestlemania their big show of the year, the granddaddy of them all. They want to call it a special event or something? Yeah, because that makes the team old. Yeah. It's not like, oh, the Super Bowl, whatever it is, 46. Oh, there's been 46 of them. I don't want to see any more.
1: But there's r- ridiculous wor- words that are banned r- that are directly related to wrestling, like wrestler.
2: Yeah, belch. Belch is something you apparently tie your pants up with, not, yeah. a, not a championship. Yeah. For yeah. some reason, interesting is banned. Yeah, They banned hospital They prefer you to use medical centre <laughs> They banned the word feud Because it's too wrestling They want rivalry They banned the word backstage Which I thought it was a weird one It's like oh in the dressing room area Or the locker room area I, 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 do, do, do you think saying the word backstage Makes you think it's fake or something? Yeah basically like,
1: these bans And they go in cycles Because sometimes they get lifted And they go basically on the whim Of the crazy owner that is Vince McMahon Yeah
2: He's banned the word pro wrestling Which is the big one
1: But like a lot of wrestlers actually rebel against that They That's use it all the time Because
2: no one ever and, and this article goes into that It It's wholeheartedly failed Because he, he started using the term sports entertainment in the 80s And ever since he's kind of steadily driven it home More and more and more Because sports entertainment is what he wants it to be called no one ever calls it sports entertainment. No. no one's ever. I'm going to the sports entertainment show today. I'm going to watch sports entertainment on the television. Yeah, it's pro wrestling. I watch, I like wrestling. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. And I think part of the reason a lot of people might look down on wrestling is because they do. Yeah. You know, they they don't even want to call it pro wrestling. It's like, stop looking down what it is because wrestling is pretty cool.
1: They see it themselves. As, they, they see themselves and they treat themselves as
2: the stepchild of entertainment. Yeah. So like. like and, and they don't want to be seen as that. But then they don't embrace what they are. They kind of shy away from what they are. It's just like, guys. So,
1: I think the better approach is to legitimize what you have and say, like, we are legitimate. And like, by treating yourselves as, le- as legitimate, people will take you seriously. UFC, you know, is a, is a huge example of that, mm. which I think is... I a, hate UFC. It's a work. I'm sorry. Like, yeah. people think, like, oh, UFC is real. Like, they always taunted me as a wrestling fan when UFC is real. It's like, if you think Brock Lesnar can get a world title shot after two fights, one of which he lost, and it's not a work, it's a business.
2: It's all business. Exactly. They, they, they even fake the the feuds. It's like, oh, I hate you. You're they position so the people
1: they want to position. It's the same yeah. thing. Anyway, before anyway. we lose all our UFC fans, <laughs> yeah, we'll move on.
2: Uh, the article I mentioned by Brandon Howard thoughtfully kind of traces the etymology of all these W phrases. Phrases, you know, when did they start using superstar? When did they start using diva? And kind of the effects that those uh, subconscious and kind of clearly evident that those phrases might have had. It's a really good read sounds like it, it took like a long time yeah you put a lot of work into it
1: well done brandon gar full disclosure you are a member
2: i do write for voices of wrestling but i had nothing to do with this so yeah. this is just me acknowledging good work
1: to wrap things up here Gar, i have another read uh this morning when i was researching bits and pieces for the show i came across an excerpt from a new sherlock holmes novel
2: oh arthur Conan doyle's back to life
1: no he's still dead oh uh so uh bonnie mcbird who's a screenwriter, as far as I know, unless I I Googled it, unless there's two Bonnie McBirds, she's a screenwriter. It's a catchy
2: name, Bonnie McBird.
1: She, she's written a new story uh, for Sherlock Holmes in the style of Sherlock Holmes. So like it'll be in the style of Sir Arthur Conan, Conan Doyle, uh, available on, some people say it's late September, but one of the official dates I read was October 6th. So uh, it's described as a fast-paced kidnap, mur- uh, murder, and art theft featuring Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson as you love them.
2: I love the way anybody can do that now. By the way, yeah, because he's out of copyright, so it's like anybody can do anything they like with Sherlock Holmes.
1: She's the first one. Like, I I could be mistaken now. Like you see a lot of people doing it with James Bond, but like people still own the rights to James Bond, so yep. they're officially commissioned to do it. But she's the first one to try it. on a on a a, a full scale novel. She's actually written a novel. It's going to be released. Uh, a synopsis. Would you like to hear a synopsis, Gar? Go ahead. London, a snowy December. 1888. A a disastrous Ripper investigation has left 35-year-old Sherlock Holmes in a deep depression and back on the cocaine.
2: On the cocaine. The cocaine.
1: Uh, No, I added the. Oh, you added the the? I added the the. The newly married Watson is summoned urgently to 221B to rouse his friend. Nothing works until the arrival of an intriguing encoded letter from a beautiful French singer. Uh, Millie or Emmeline Le Victoire Super cool made up name Very Sherlock Holmesy. Yes Her legitimate son, Emil, With a famous art collector, humanitarian father The Earl of Pellingham Has disappeared and she fears him kidnapped And she herself has been accosted on the street And mystery and twists and intrigue unfolds from there
2: I like Holmes I do. I Mostly because like there's, there's a ton of adaptations of them out there at the moment.
1: Yeah. I mean, like people can't get enough uh, of Sherlock on the BBC and there's Elementary uh, uh, in America. Also, there's a new Mr. Holmes film with an older Sherlock Holmes. Yeah,
2: And there's the Robert Downey Jr. Holmes films, which I st- I think
1: are still kicking about. Yeah, they, they're they trying to get a third one made. It's just a scheduling thing because Robert Downey Jr. is literally the most in-demand actor. And he's at, being Iron Man work. a lot. I have a couple of quotes here for some people that have read advanced copies. Bonnie McBird's Art in the Blood has the, the three ingredients for the delicious pastiche, meticulous research, plausibility and grand fun. And that's from Leslie S. Klinger, editor of the new annotated Sherlock Holmes. It's called The Art in the Blood. There is actually an episode of Elementary called The Art in the Blood as well.
2: So, so I assume this ties back in some way to something of Holmes. This yeah, time.
1: but like basically she's researched Sherlock Holmes a lot. So like the style of writing is the style of writing that he used in terms of using old English, which may or may not be a good approach because... It's that,
2: 2015. It could alienate some people. I read the... His, his English wasn't old English at the time. It was just English.
1: I know, but like, <laughs> it's not necessarily that hard to understand, but just the way it's phrased may put people off a bit because yeah. it may confuse them a small bit. But I, I actually read it. The whole first chapter is available on Entertainment Weekly, which is a US website. So if you Google Sherlock Holmes L Entertainment Weekly, you should be able to find it. Another quote says a thoroughly entertaining Sherlock Holmes adventure worthy of Doyle himself with a vivid personal detail, a superb labyrinth plot, snappy pacing, and most importantly, a deep respect for the classic characters. And that's from Brian Cogman, who is co-producer and writer on HBO's Game of Thrones.
2: You don't watch Game of Thrones.
1: I don't watch Game of Thrones. It's something on my list. My long, long list. Ken has a very long list. So I've actually read, I've read the the first chapter because I like free chapter. Why not? Uh, I, like, I appreciate her efforts. She like, She really researched the characters. She tried to inhabit the style of Arthur Conan Doyle, as I said. Um, maybe treading with a similar ground, like just Moby Sherlock Holmes, who's bored because he hasn't got a case, and a case didn't go so well. So he's back on the opiates. And, um, you know, like, uh, Watson is recently married. Uh, the the lady that they used to, to live with, whose name escapes me at the moment, Mrs. Ah, oh, it's not gonna to come to me. Nope. Tweet us at TWSKK to tell <laughs> us the, the landlady of oh, in two twenty one B. I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Literally I read this earlier and I and like it's like, oh it's it's her. Disappear from your head. Disappeared from my head completely. But it's it's like the first chapter is very promising. Like it kinda of unveils kind of a, a bit of a an intrigue and basically the the case shakes him out of his funk and they're off to Paris to try and find this young boy Emil Emil. Uh very, very cleverly written, very good attention to detail. So you'll be getting it when it comes out. I will be getting it. Uh, but you, if like, it won't be out for a while. But as I said, if you want to go to Entertainment Weekly and search, search Sherlock Holmes, you can get the first chapter for free to wet your whistle. Uh, wh- one of the funny things I, th- I thought she wrote a kind of a fictional preface in that she's saying she's saying that um is a nice little touch. Her preface says that she was researching uh, uh Victorian medicine in uh before the 2012 Olympics, and she came across an old manuscript of a story by John Watson that hadn't been released because the the narrative style of the original books was that Watson wrote the stories about Holmes and he was the one that's narrating them. Yeah. So he she found an old manuscript and she's trying to piece it together. But uh, one of the funny thoughts I thought, she's here's a quote from the preface, said, over time, perhaps from moisture and fading, a number of passages have become unreadable And I have endeavored to reconstruct what has seemed to be missing from them. If there's any mistakes of style or historical inaccuracies, please describe these to my inability to fill in places where the writing had become indecipherable, which is basically a nerd rage disclaimer in case they think it's crap.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's my
1: fault. (laughs) It's just like... I'm trying to write Sherlock Holmes. I'm trying to write like Arthur Conan Doyle. If I make mistakes, you will point them out. But I told you already that I've made mistakes. So please don't crucify me for it. Exactly. Please don't bully me on Twitter. But I recommend checking out the chapter. And when it comes out, I will be picking it up. Cool. That's all the picks we have for you. More on next week's episode. Coming up next, we profile the life of the late Nintendo president, Satoru Iwata, who passed away this week at the age of 55. The self-described gamer at heart left an indelible mark on the video game industry. We talk his impact and achievements after the break.
0: You're listening to The Weekend Show Podcast
3: with Ken Kidney. On my business card, I am a corporate president. In my mind, I am a game developer. But in my heart, I am a gamer.
2: Last Sunday, Nintendo announced the death of its president, Satoru Iwata. Iwata, 55 died due to complications from a tumor in his bile duct. Unlike many CEOs, uh, Iwata began life as a programmer, making games for HAL Laboratories, who made games for Nintendo systems including the Kirby and Super Smash Bros. series, before making the transition to Nintendo in the year 2000. In 2002, Iwata was appointed company president, only the fourth in the history of the company, and the first outside the Yamauchi family. Iwata oversaw the wildly successful launches of both the Nintendo DS and the Nintendo Wii. More than anything, he believed in creating games that were fun, not just for gamers, but for anyone who happened to pick them up. He will be deeply missed. This this really hit me hard over the weekend, Ken.
1: It's so sad and the outpouring of grief from across
2: the internet has been huge. He was a widely respected individual. And even
1: if you didn't know who he was, because to be honest, I did not know who the president of Nintendo was.
2: You would have seen him in puppet form when you watched that video.
1: Yeah, I've seen him in puppet form, and I've never,
2: you know, I
1: I wouldn't pay too much attention to the hierarchy of Nintendo. But, like, thinking back on what he's meant to my childhood, Mm -hmm. like, he has had an impact, and like, I didn't even know because I I didn't even know who he was before last week, essentially. But my experiences were created by him in some way.
2: Yeah, because traditionally I would have been a kind of a Nintendo handheld guy. It's only in recent years... We, we owned a Wii and we owned the GameCube, but we never really played them as much as we would have other other consoles. We
1: got them for the sake of having them, really.
2: Yeah, but only in recent years. I, I bought a Wii U and went head first. But even before that, like we would have had every iteration of the Game Boy and the DS. So this is a man who helped kind of create so many of the things. And even if he didn't directly create them, he oversaw the creation of so many things that, have brought, that has brought me so much joy through the years.
1: Yeah, but his philosophy was that that gaming should be inclusive it shouldn't be just for that subculture for yeah. those introverted guys who who sit in their dark rooms and game all day and he wanted, and he wanted to them.
2: rebel against that stereotype as well
1: he wanted it to be for everyone and like everyone can have to be part of a game and, it, and it's part of being social and it's part of of a cultural fabric fabric rather than being something that's just kind of C D or or, or a kind
2: of load of violence that's rotting the brains of children.
1: Yeah, it's it's just a way of being social, as much as going out for a drink is, or yeah. going to going to a concert, you can or go to
2: a concert, or you can sit around and play around a round of Mario Kart. Yeah, which I love. Kart, I, I love Mario a good Kart, game and it's 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 those kind of experiences where you're you're playing Mario Kart because you're not the best at Mario Kart, Ken. No, I
1: won the odd time.
2: Yeah, but when you blue shell somebody and veer past them, and those kind of experiences, those kind of social togetherness experiences.
1: It creates uh, bonds between people, and that can't be understated, I don't think.
2: That that was a large part of his vision. He wanted games that bring people together, and games that kind of change the vision of what people see as a gamer. You know, yeah. there would have been that kind of rebellion against video games in the 90s. Like, you would have seen the, the exact same thing against comics in the kind of 50s and 60s. Or, yeah. you know, these are things that are rotting our children's brain. And I imagine you saw the same thing with television.
1: Yeah, so but, it's it's kind of the new iteration of... of
2: someone getting up on their high horse and saying this is terrible for children's minds
1: and it's it's been proven as like a huge movement in in e-learning and in in development of of education now that gamification is actually a valid uh, way of of imparting knowledge and it actually works and it actually more than any other type of of teaching actually activates parts of kids brains that that enhances their development because it Mm -hmm. It it teaches them problem solving. It teaches them all sorts of things. So it's it's a very antiquated notion that like it's a tool like any other. You can use it for bad. You can use it for good. One of the interesting things I read about him, he kind of had a a, a uh, it's a business philosophy called blue ocean thinking, and it's not necessarily uh, specific to gaming. But he wasn't into competition. He wasn't like we're gonna have to drive these guys out of business. We have to be rivaling them. He said like he t- he was more about creating open uh, market spaces where you do your thing we'll do our thing yeah. and we can all coexist together and there's no need to be in competition because we're going to be known for something so like th- this is a, uh, ties back to ds and the way this is what we're known for people have re- replicated it xbox uh playstation move is it called Um yeah so it's it's ro- yeah playstation move and the connect n- 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 neither of them have, have had any sustainability because that's not what they do yeah, that,
2: Nintendo have always kind of marched to the beat of their own drum. Yeah, They're like uh, we don't really care what you guys are doing. We're just going to be over here doing our thing,
1: and that's a great like, and that's a great way to do business because you can exist in your own space and you don't have to like go with the pressure of having to to compete with Sony because you're not Sony. Yeah. You're, you're you're Nintendo.
2: Your Mario games and fun and, and and we silliness and and he kind of rebelled against the move towards increasingly photorealistic games, which I, I kind of very much agree with. Yeah. like Fair enough for a game like Batman You know yeah. where the more photorealistic It is the more you feel like you're playing as Batman Yeah, But I don't want a photorealistic uh, Illustration of war yeah. Or any of that stuff whereas I want Kind of fantasy and magical Mario Kingdom Where you jump on stupid Goomba heads and run across Strange weird universes Where the rules just don't really apply
1: Yeah because the photorealistic style It, it is impressive it is. But it really limits The bounds of your imagination yeah. because It's it's what real life is because like from like my a, understanding, I play a game to escape from real life. Yeah, the kind of
2: fantasy, the bright and happy colors of a Mario game.
1: And if you're kind of using the animated style, the, the bounds of, of, of reality and imagination are endless. You can do literally anything and it's, it's like everything goes. Yeah.
3: I was not alone. There were others there who also looked at those early computers and thought the same thing I did. How could we play games on them?
1: So uh, a little bit about Iwata's time as a programmer, because that's what he would have been most known for in his formative years.
2: Yeah, that's what kind of separated him from a lot of kind of CEOs of gaming companies who are traditionally just business people. You know, there are people who came through the ranks of Microsoft or came through the ranks of Sony and then were happened to be put in charge of their video gaming division, as opposed to Satoru Iwata, who, who came up as a video game designer. He was a programmer. So, uh, he worked for Hal Laboratories, as we mentioned earlier, who who played a large role in the creation of the Kirby character, that adorable pink ball of fluff,
1: who they recently yarnified. Yeah,
2: and it's delightful. You played, uh, what's it called? Uh, Kirby's, Your, Epic Kirby,
1: Kirby's Epic Yarn. Kirby's Epic Yarn. I watched you play it a little bit, and yeah. genuinely, it's one of the most gorgeous games I've it's ever just seen.
2: Super adorable. fun. Those are the kind of games that that he kind of wanted to champion at Nintendo. Those kind of fun, interesting, kind of different kind of games which appeal to a a broader audience than just one narrow subset of people. Uh, He also played a role in uh, programming the Earthbound series, which is one of the strangest, quirkiest, kind of most hilarious games you can ever come across. It's a kind of a satire of America uh, by uh, the creator was Shigesato Itoi, who's more known for being a comedian than a game designer. But well, he went into the uh, the world of game design and created this weird, quirky game, which people kind of adore as kind of a cult classic. And uh, Iwata played a huge role in programming that game. Also, and this, this just shows how, how great he was at programming. Uh, he worked a little. He consulted with a Game Freak for the Pokemon games, and they were struggling fitting all of Johto into the Gold and Silver cartridges because you would have played the, the Gold and Silver games. You had Silver, yep. I had Gold. Yeah, because we had to be different. Yep, we had. And we could trade we even awesome. though we never did and i'd always battle you and beat you
1: hashtag don't want to talk about it yeah
2: but they were struggling to actually fit all of the johto game onto a single uh game boy color cartridge so he came along and he created a set of compression tools that not only allowed them to fit the johto onto it but also allowed them to add all of kanto onto one single game cartridge and if if you remember back to those old days of Pokemon Gold and Silver, the coolest thing about that game is when you defeat all eight gyms, you go and beat the Pokemon League, then you're like, well, remember those ones from the first games you liked? You can play them here too.
1: And then you go face Ash in the end in some incarnations.
2: So and that, like, that would have never happened had he not consulted on that and created a set of compression tools that actually allowed that to like technically happen.
1: That takes a level of vision. Yeah. That's just... Uh, genius it has yeah to, it and, has and to technical precise.
2: skill and apparently he ported like the the entire um pokemon uh, stadium series uh, the first pokemon stadium game on n64 he, he programmed that without reference notes he just knew the game boy color source code because yeah. he, he wanted to that was the kind of 3d game with 3d kind of fighting game yeah and he wanted it to be as close to the um the rpgs the traditional kind of game boy games as possible so he, he fixed all the coding for that without reference notes
1: insane yeah
2: and he also played a role in helping create the super smash Bros. series which still lives to this day
1: and had a, hu- a huge success with its last release
2: and because like because of this you know because he actually spent time developing games because he spent time kind of uh programming and making video games he kind of understood how game developers think or thought mm-hmm. even
1: yeah but he also had a, a keen eye for for design as you said in terms of uh, not like like i think the like the true geniuses in this world in this world are the people who can program but also has a have a visual sense and design yeah that's a very strong combination and i i have a friend like that and literally like i you're just in awe of seeing them work because they just get things like like stuff just comes together with them like stuff that they pick up once and then they go like i've never touched this before but I created something brilliant from it yeah it's a level of genius that it's underestimated people think like to be a genius you have to discover an atom like it's not like there's all sorts of geniuses this man was a genius because he he had the two sides of the coin but he was able to bring them together
2: yeah he was able to bring kind of management and businessman together with game developer and creator creator in a way that you don't normally see usually like uh, creative integrity is sacrificed to a degree for kind of commercial success Whereas he, he tried to stop that from happening. He wanted quality, he wanted fun more than anything else.
1: And he still and he still had the taste for it even though he was
2: Yeah, apparently in, in recent years he, he kind of wanted to go back and make another game, but obviously running a company like Nintendo he never really had the time. That would have been so cool. It would have. Like the CEO of a company actually designing a new game. But he could actually relate to kind of game design he could relate to the people working under him because he actually knew what they were doing. He kind of he could speak their language
1: and that like that's the best kind of manager you want yeah. so like rather than a person that comes in from another company like say they got someone for a high-ranking executive from another toy company yeah that what doesn't work as well or someone like 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 that that comes from your ranks that kind of says i know what you're going through i know the frustrations but i also know the joys and he can call you out in your shit as well it's like this <laughs> is terrible he knows what he's talking about here's how you fix it because uh, the,
2: the president, the, uh, the president before him was Hiroshi Yamauchi, who ran the company for 50 years. Openly admitted that he never really understood video games. And it's so, so crazy. Some people don't
1: know this, uh, but Nintendo have been around for over 100 years. Yeah,
2: since the 1800s. They started as like a trading card company game, so making cards. Exactly. So They not, started making games in like the 70s.
1: So like people think like they're a video game company and that's all they've ever associated with them with. So that's an interesting piece of trivia on this. Yeah. Uh, as a side note they are actually not always a a video game company but it's something that it's literally what they're synonymous with It's so to the point where people don't actually know that they're, they're
2: they're 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 a company that's been around for over 100 years that's the reason that whenever someone's like oh nintendo are going to die sometime soon it's like no they're not they've been
1: around 100 years and and they've done an excellent job of of recreating themselves through generations like went from trading cards to video games and any they revolutionize themselves with the Wii and with 3D as well.
3: The third thing that has not changed is the importance of the idea. Of course, it is valuable to devise an extension or offshoot of a current idea, but it is invaluable to come up with a brand new idea of what a game can be. Are we creating games just for each other Do you have friends and family members who do not play video games? Well, why don't they? And I would ask this. How often have you challenged yourself to create a game that you might not play? I think these questions form an important challenge for all of us
2: was very conscious of expanding games to a broader audience. He, he wanted to make games for as many people as possible. You know, when he saw, oh, well, this many people play games, he wondered, why doesn't everyone else? You know, yeah. if a if uh, father sees his son playing video games, why doesn't the father join in? Yeah. So he wanted to try and make games for those people, make games for everybody. And I think we really saw that manifest itself with kind of the launch of the DS and the launch of the Wii.
1: Yeah, because, like, we had a, a spate of, of brain games and puzzle games. Yeah, the, the Wii fitness games, the Wii sports. Like, our mother, who at the time was maybe in her late 40s, early 50s, yep. never picked up a game in her entire life.
2: Wouldn't have gone near it under any circumstances.
1: Got obsessed with Wii Basketball.
2: Yeah, on the Wii Sports Resort, the kind of three-point shooting basketball game. She was obsessed with it. She wanted to constantly try and beat her high score.
1: And we played it together, which is like the first time, I think, as a family we've ever played games. I played
2: one round of Tekken with Dad once. Yeah. Years ago, and then he never went near it again. But this is me and my mom sitting there playing Wii Sports basketball. And like, that kind of...
1: That kind of cultural impact can't be understated. You're taking games from something that's a subculture yeah. to something that's in the mainstream.
2: Because the, the Wii wasn't a video game console in the same uh, same way the Xbox and the PlayStation was. It was legitimately like a cultural phenomenon. Exactly. Uh, literally, I mean, you
1: had to have it. I mean, like...
2: Oh, yeah, it was crazy at the time.
1: Couldn't buy one. Like, crazy. You couldn't get your hands we on it. We were one. lucky. We got one pretty early.
2: Yeah, we got it. I think of uh, because... A pre-order was cancelled or something and we managed to swoop in and get it. Sweep in and get our hands on it.
1: But and there was a focus on gains not being so much goal-oriented or difficult, but it's just
2: approachable more than anything else. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Open, uh promoting a sense of togetherness. And like 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 yes, there's scores, but like it's not like this game is hard and you have to level up or you have to do this, or you have to do that, you have to achieve certain goals. It's just about uh, finding common bonds and finding t- like, and spending time together, so it created like the the Wii is a social tool as much as anything else.
2: Yeah, because the the controls are extraordinarily intuitive. You don't need to push buttons mostly. It's just like if you're playing Wii Sports, all you do is swing your hands.
1: It's a, it's a cultural and social revolution, but it's also a gaming revolution. I think.
2: Yeah, because Wii Sports isn't like technically. A brilliantly designed video, you know. It's it's. It, there's not huge depth to it. There's it's not, not
1: photorealistic.
2: Yeah, there's not wonderful stories or, or gameplay mechanics. But I I'd put it up there as one of the greatest games of all time.
1: Just because just because of the impact it yeah, had,
2: for the simple impact it had, and it 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 justified the existence of the Wii single handedly. You know, you bought a Wii. It came packed with Wii Sports. Every edition of the Wii came with Wii Sports, and you played Wii Sports, and you understood the Wii. Yeah. You know, you, you understand this is what this thing can do and this is why this thing exists. And it's it's as perfect a video game for what it was trying to achieve as you could possibly ask for.
1: And another cool thing is I studied multimedia as we spoke about in college. And people like started hacking Wiimotes. Yeah. Using the technology for uh, multimedia installations, creating their own games. Mm-hmm. So it also created like uh, indie gamer, indie gamer and, and media design culture. It created a whole other avenue for communication and presenting
2: your work. Because people gave out about the Wii because, you know, it wasn't the most powerful console. You know, it didn't put out HD graphics or any of that kind of stuff. It didn't have the the best kind of technical specifications in there. But it, it did exactly what it set out to do. And that's the reason it sold 100 million units. Crazy money. And then they also made the DS, which I think was mobile gaming before mobile gaming was cool. It was very much that kind of, let's make these games that are aimed at different kind of people. These kind of, uh, like Nintendogs, like kind of the brain training games. Those are the kind of games you see on iOS and and, uh, the Google Play Store all the time now.
1: Yeah, Professor Layton, another...
2: Yeah, Yeah. appealing to a broader demographic. And that sold 150 million units, (laughs) Ken. That console cycle of the DS and the Wii, they sold 250 million units. Yeah, because they came under a lot of stick in recent years because uh, Iwata took over the company in 2002 when they, the, game, the, the GameCube was the console of the generation then and it yeah. wasn't doing so well. Yeah. So then he took over the company and launched the Wii and the DS which were like not only like gaming phenomenons, they were cultural phenomenons. They took over the world. So then after that, they launched the Wii U which uh, compared to the 100 million units that the Wii sold, uh, the Wii U sold uh, nine and a half. Yeah. Which is uh, a big drop.
1: Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe it's because it's people just find it hard to keep up with with buying new consoles.
2: And I think that we kind of burned people out by the end. Yeah, because it's like people thought like I'm kind of done with this. You know, they yeah. kind of saw what it had to offer, and then they moved on and they didn't come back for the Wii U, which is a great gaming device. There's it just...
1: seemed I remember seeing it and seeing the controller. It just seemed a little bit gimmicky to me. You see,
2: we dodged. We managed. to We bought a Wii U. We had a Wii for the whole. Or uh, we bought a Wii. We had a Wii for the whole of like the Wii cycle. We didn't yeah. sell it or anything, and we never bought any of the good games that were released on the Wii. We never bought Mario Galaxy. We never yeah. bought Paper Mario. We didn't even buy Skyward Sword. We we didn't buy any of the really good Wii games. I think that's the. Problem. I think people kind of missed the the great Wii games
1: because people bought it. it's kind of a fad. People, everyone had to have it, and then they kind of just focus on maybe, as you said, they had Wii Sports, and there was a,
2: there was a bunch of junk released that on it as well because yeah. that that's what happens. You see the same with the the Apple Store, where people just release a bunch of rubbish trying to capitalize on something that's doing really well.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of a case of where you pull pulled in casual gamers. They also weren't going to see the potential past the superficial things of Wii Sports. They weren't going to look for the the, the better titles. So, it it its success was also kind of as a limitation in that sense.
2: Yeah, and because uh, the the current generation, which is headed by the Wii U, which is sold as I said about ten million units, and the three DS, which is still sold fifty two million units, which is still a lot of three DSs sold. So and he's come under some uh, slackers uh they reported a loss for i think three straight years yeah so they weren't doing so well for a while but now they're launching amiibo It sold uh ten and a half million units in six months crazy it is and uh, they're moving into mobile soon which is going to make them tons of money
1: and like they don't even have to make anything new just re-release they the old release, things on mobile yeah,
2: they could release the first two pokemon games on mobile and they'd make a lot of money
1: or even the old mario games on
2: mobile yep and tons uh money. also they announced the nx and just to show you the kind of leader that Awata was, when they announced that they missed their targets in 2014, he cut his own pay in half. You know, he, he didn't blame blame everyone else. He didn't say, oh, it's, it's this thing's fault and this thing's fault and this thing's fault. He took responsibility for it and cut his own pay in half. Like some of our politicians could take a, a cue from seriously, that. Seriously, you see uh, the CEO culture these days, which is just blame everyone else, blame everyone else. He's like, nope, we, let the, uh, we missed targets. We let people down. I'm going to cut my own pay in half.
1: That's the thing is like, like people will fail and still take bonuses. Yeah. But he like, but I suppose maybe it's a Japanese, uh, it's a difference in culture because like he took responsibility for his actions and he saw himself as the cause as much as anyone else. Yeah. Because he was the leader and he fell on his own sword as such to not, not to purport a cliche, but it's true. Like they just have a, a more holistic vision of, of what it takes to succeed is like if I'm not playing my part then I don't deserve to enjoy success we enjoy success together or we don't enjoy it at all exactly and I think that's what maybe makes Nintendo separate from other companies yeah
2: and he looked to break down barriers between kind of the company and the consumer as well he launched kind of a Nintendo Direct series of videos they're called Nintendo Direct they're monthly occasionally every two months updates usually kind of half an hour to 40 minutes where he just stands in front of a camera there was occasional like little uh gags you saw the the E3 video where they did puppets. Yeah. Or it was Mr. Oata as a puppet, which is the best thing about this series E3. He will be forever immortalized as a Jim Henson puppet,
1: which is my dream.
2: It is. But, uh, those were direct him standing there in front of the camera, directly talking to consumers, which is, uh, I think is, is why people kind of really, uh, this kind of death hit them hard because he was very, but he was a very public figure. He's very well-liked because he always seemed very warm, kind of very uh, good-humoured.
1: Very well-known to the yeah. community
2: here gamers. Very jovial. He seemed like a really nice man, a really warm man. And he also hosted uh, the Iwata Asks series of uh, it's on the website. It's essentially a series where he sits down with the developers of games that have just been released and talks to, toilet, talks to them about like the development cycle and where the ideas came from and how it was iterated upon through the years. And it's kind of a really neat, kind of insightful look at what uh where the games came from the games you're about to go out and buy
1: and again his understanding makes that stuff intriguing
2: yeah he he knows what to ask he he actually understands their thought process
1: and like i think in any company being accessible to your people is something that's going to make people embrace you
2: yeah and he he just seems like such a nice man Uh, and i do think that's uh, that's why people have responded so so of passionately, with an outpouring of kind of
1: like tributes. Exactly, that the Nintendo fan base feel part of something, and like he was their leader, and yeah. like it's as much like it's like you could liken it to like a well liked pope or a well-liked king, like when they died, there's like an outpouring of grief because their leader is gone.
2: And he's only 55 as well, which is
1: it's such a shame.
2: Extremely sad. He
1: was sick for a few years, I think, yeah, wasn't he? he,
2: he well, it became public last year when he missed E3, the kind of big gaming convention we covered it a few months ago. We covered this year's one a few months ago, which he also missed. But he was advised against doctor's orders to travel. So he, he didn't travel. And the same thing happened this year where he actually didn't travel over to America. He was still present in all of like the videos they put out and that kind of stuff, but he wasn't actually over there in Los Angeles.
1: It's, it's sad, but there's, like, as you said, there's been an, an outpouring of grief for yeah. his passing and tributes have flooded in from all over the world.
2: Yeah, people like Xbox, PlayStation, Activision, Platinum Games, Bungie, uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, of course, uh, Zelda Williams, Rob Williams' daughter who is named after the video game princess.
1: He's quite the gamer.
2: Yeah, uh, over 4,000 people had attended his two-day funeral uh, this weekend. That's
1: uh, I mean like we talked about Tama the yeah. cat, and I think it was a thousand people yeah. came to see her funeral. So like that's four times a famous cat in Japan. So that's pretty it's pretty big. Without without making light of his his passing, that it's just showing like just just like the impact he had on not only the, the world of gaming but the world in general.
2: Mm. Uh, a particularly kind of touching tribute came from Earthbound creator Shigesato Toy, which uh, I'll read. Uh, when I'm parting with a friend, regardless of the circumstances, I find it best to just say, "See you later." We'll meet again. After all, we're friends. That's right. Nothing unusual about it. I'll see you later. You went on a trip, uh, a trip far, far away, even though it was planned for many years from now. You wore your best outfit and said, "Sorry for such notice," though you didn't say it out loud. You always put yourself last after you'd helped finishing everyone else. You were so generous as a friend that this trip might be your very first selfish act. I still can't grasp what's happened. It feels like I could get a light-hearted email asking me to lunch at any moment, after you've made sure lunch wouldn't disrupt my schedule, of course. You can invite me out whenever you want. I'll invite you out too. So for now, let's plan on meeting again. You can call me up whenever you like, and I'll give you a call too. I still have a lot to talk to you about, and if I come up with any particularly good ideas, I'll let you know. So let's meet again. No, I suppose we're already meeting. Right here, right now, It's an extremely touching tribute.
1: Yeah, oh, sorry, I got a little bit emotional. I know, yeah, it was, it, my voice is going to A little catch in my throat,
2: and my voice was legitimately about to break while I was reading that. But
1: it's just so nice. I mean, it's just like uh,
2: there's a and button. even like the little bits of humor thrown in there. It's like it, yeah. it's a very to a toy,
1: but kind of says like that that you know he'll never be forgotten. Yeah. His legacy speaks for itself, and it, it like he'll live on through his legacy, and. It says the kind of person that he was. Like he put himself last, never disrupted anyone, didn't kind of went quietly through this world and helped people and made it a better place. And like that's all you can hope for in the end that you've you've left the place, the world, better off than you left it. And he certainly did that. Uh, sorry, that you then you arrived he in. in He came in, and he left it too soon, Gar. But he definitely left at least the world of gaming a better place.
2: Yeah, his his legacy is unquestionable, and he touched the hearts of like millions and millions of people myself included and he helped guide me towards some of my most treasured experiences that he helped create them and for that I'll be forever grateful. Uh RIP Mr. Iwata. You will be dearly missed. Satoru
1: Iwata 1959 to 2015. You will not be forgotten and will live on through your beloved characters forever. Feel free to share some of your favorite memories of the late gaming great and his accomplishments. You can find us on facebook.com forward slash TWSKK and on Twitter at TWSKK. We will be right back to say see you later. Take it away, Bruce. You're
0: listening to The Weekend Show Podcast with Ken Kidney. Download every Sunday at soundcloud.com slash The Weekend Show.
1: Okie dokie Nintendo fans, if you're out there listening, thank you for taking the time to click play or download on the podcast. You can find a new episode every Sunday at SoundCloud.com forward slash The Weekend Show and all good podcast providers including the bright and shiny iTunes. You can follow us on Facebook at TWSKK and on Twitter at TWSKK. Our theme music is by Mr. Drawn and until next time, say goodbye girl.
3: Bye bye.